I was encouraged by another preacher that if a story is good, it can stand to be repeated. So I'm going to tell you a story that I have told before, but I think it's been a while. So for some of you, it's a repeat, but others, I hope, will enjoy it in its newness. When our oldest two children were five and three years old, they were sitting on the couch having a deep discussion. Now, it's important that you recognize the age of them because if you visualize this, they were seated on the couch and their backs were to the back cushion, but their feet didn't go out beyond the cushion. So their feet just stuck straight out in front of them, Gabe's feet nearing the end of the cushion, but Vivian's being some distance from the edge of the seat of the couch. And I overheard them. I was in the other room, and I heard Vivian say to Gabriel, she, the three-year-old, Now, when did Jesus die? There was a long silence. And she, checking her knowledge, said, it wasn't at Christmas. And Gabe affirmed her and said, no, that was when he was born. Again, a long silence. She said, was it at Easter? And Gabe confidently said, no, that's when he came back to life. Again, silence. And finally, Gabe offered up, I think it was at Thanksgiving. (laughs) We celebrate Christ the King Sunday every year. It's the end of our liturgical year, and it just so happens it's always by Thanksgiving. This is not somebody's design. The Feast of Christ the King has been recognized in the church for hundreds of years. Our liturgical, our worship schedule, our cycle begins with the first Sunday of Advent, which will be next Sunday, and goes all the way to the end, which is now here we are, Christ the King Sunday. And on the last Sunday of our liturgical year, we remember the kingship of Christ. That's the emphasis. And it just so happens for us Americans that it always falls next to Thanksgiving. It's either the Sunday before or the Sunday after Thanksgiving. So I thought it would be fun to reflect on what there is to be thankful about in the kingdom of Christ. In our gospel lesson this morning, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus, the Christ, is sitting on his throne and separating the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous. And this is the final part of Matthew's gospel. We're in the 25th chapter. We're near the end. This is a long gospel, in case you're wondering. This is probably the longest gospel. It and Luke are very very long. And so here we are at the very end, and Jesus is teaching and instructing his disciples on how God evaluates humanity, and thus how God recognizes who God's people are. You might also remember that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew focuses on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, repeats it throughout that text. It's most repeated in Matthew's gospel. And throughout the gospel, we see people really wrestle with what that exactly means. So when is that going to happen again? And where will it be? Using the awareness they have of what a kingdom incorporates or what it is about, the questions follow accordingly. So two brothers, one to sit, one at his right hand, and one at his left when he comes into his kingdom, right? Because a kingdom has a throne and then there are lead rulers as a part of it. But Jesus repeats throughout the gospel, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is among you. The kingdom of God has come near. Over and over again, trying to give a new way of understanding the kingdom of God. 
You see, we understand kingdoms with particular boundaries. There are land and water masses that are incorporated or not. And so we also understand kingdoms as residing in a time and place. And we fall into that exact same trap, saying, where is the kingdom of God? I want to be a part of that. Is it out there in eternity somewhere? Then I'm going to make sure I'm a part of that. But our gospel reminds us over and over again of how the kingdom is actually created. It's created in relationship. Relationship with Christ. And thus relationship with one another. Now this is the good news, bad news of the kingdom. The good news is its accessibility, its availability. Do you realize we don't have to save funds to get to the kingdom? We don't have to create a kingdom account that will recover our costs of our travel or any incidentals. We don't have to anticipate the challenges and trials we might face if we were wanted to enter into the kingdom of God. We don't have to learn new language. We don't have to go anywhere. That's the good news. But what might be considered the bad news is that it is only made known in relationship. It doesn't have a place that it exists without us. We'll never check off this box. I got to thinking about a kingdom and what is a part of a kingdom and thinking about what it means in the kingdom of God, these particular attributes. I came up with these four qualities, four aspects of a kingdom. One is citizenship. Who is in the kingdom? Another is economy, the measure of exchange and valuing of goods. A third is authority. Who's in charge and how how does being in charge and not being in charge work? And the fourth is security, the stability of the kingdom. So I want to reflect a little bit on what these four qualities look like in the kingdom of God. Citizenship. We are all invited into the kingdom of God. There is no one checking papers. You don't get in only because of who you're born to or because of a certain tribal identity or some blood connection. The kingdom of God is open to all people. And the only way that you get in is by entering it. You have to enter it. You decide whether or not you're a part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has various ways of functioning, and you demonstrate that you're a part of the kingdom by how you carry yourself out, by your recognition of the lordship of Christ and what that means in your life. And so in our gospel lesson today, when Jesus is sitting there telling the story about the end, the separation of the sheep and the goats, he recognizes who's in the kingdom. They've already shown themselves. It's an easy separation. And he lists all these ways that people show that they are a part of the kingdom of God, caring for those on the periphery, the outcast, those that have nothing, by reaching beyond the human boundaries and to the needs of those around us, we demonstrate our desire and our claiming of our citizenship. The second aspect of a kingdom is the economy. You know, a kingdom needs to have a right um, means of exchange and value to be recognized by all people. I mean, in our own country, when we, the South and the North were fighting one another, were lots of different types of currency, and it was made known that if we're going to be one nation, we've got to have the same means of currency. 
the same economic mechanisms, a way of understanding what's valued and not valued. Well, in God's kingdom, all creation is valued. Everything that has been created has the same worth. And God is mindful of all creation and invites us into that same mindfulness. Consider in Matthew's gospel alone when Jesus is telling the disciples not to worry. And he says, look, God clothes the field, clothes the field with flowers and feeds the sparrows. Don't you think he's going to remember you too? We recognize the value of all creation, and so we're invited into that economy. And I dare say the miracle of miracles in the kingdom of God is that each person gets what they need. Always. Have you had that experience? I feel like I've heard it from you. When you have sought to offer or help someone else, and you end up feeling helped in in return, just by the nature of helping, You think, how does this work? I thought I was the giver. How am I being the receiver too? Think of St. Francis of of Assisi and his prayer. Well, it's the one we attribute to him. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. It goes on, and then in the end it says, for it is in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we're pardoned. And it's in loving that we are caught up in the love and life. How does that work? In God's economy, everyone gets what they need. It's not a zero-sum game, and we often live in an economy or operate our lives in an economy as if it is, certain that it's going to run out pretty soon. Oh, how God calls us into the kingdom and says, do you not remember I'm a God of abundance, that I care for all creation, that if I'm caring about flowers and sparrows, I'm going to care for you. Live in this kingdom. The third aspect is authority. Who's in charge and how does this all work? Jesus was radical in his coming among us, letting us know that God could be both Lord and Father. That God's authority was not diminished by our intimate relationship with God. When the disciples said to Jesus, teach us how to pray, he said, okay, our Father... He allowed and invited us into a one-to-one relationship. No six degrees of separation here. We don't have to go through the magistrates and the judges and the whatevers and the whatevers and the whatevers to get to the one who's really in charge. We are invited into that relationship directly. And so we say in our Eucharistic prayer, I don't know if you've picked up this adjective, we are bold to say, our Father. The one who made all who is beyond all time and space, our very creator, we recognize as the one who is intimately close to us. So the lordship of God is one key aspect of the kingdom. And finally, security. Jesus shows us that we do not need to be afraid that we can trust our very lives to God because that which we feel like might destroy us will not destroy us. And we know this primarily in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here, Jesus, in his humanity, operating in a very specific place and time, challenged the way things were going. And people didn't like it. He was thought that he, he would be causing a revolution 
that bad things would happen because of his presence. And he was, the people who had problems with him tried to deal with him in some really kind of nicer ways by banishing him, by ignoring him, by challenging him and debating with him. And when he would not keep quiet, when he would not go away, they knew that one thing would ultimately silence him. It's always silenced. And that is death. And so that is what was pursued. Finally, his death. In the most crass and debasing way of all, crucifixion. But my friends, we see that that didn't have the last word. Death didn't have the last word. Even though everyone thought that it would. Jesus' adversaries thought that it would, but even his followers thought that it would. That's why they went into a room and locked the door after Jesus' death. They didn't know what was happening and were certain that they would be next. When the women went to the tomb to finish the burial that was hastily done and didn't find them there, they were sure his body had been stolen. But... Three days later, Christ rose again. And we see the boundaries of death even broken. I can assure you that in the days following Jesus' death and the notice that he wasn't around, people tried to find him. Both his followers tried to find him and his adversaries. In rising again, we see that he broke the bounds of death. And so we don't need to be afraid. The very things that we are certain will destroy us, God assures us, do not have the last word, that God will take them and transform them into new life. That as we live into the kingdom of God, that's what God does. And it blows our mind that this is possible. How is it possible that God can take the worst possible thing and make something good come from it? It doesn't make sense to us, but in God's kingdom, God does that. And so we are invited to live into that kingdom. One way that this has been such a practice of my own has been in keeping a Sabbath day. And by keeping a Sabbath day, the primary way I did that is I didn't check email. That's my primary way. I don't check email for one whole day. Now, I began keeping Sabbath time even before email was very prevalent, and um, our kids were young. So I would keep them home from school, from the nursery school, so that I would make a point of not trying to work because it's really hard to work when you have a toddler around or a preschool person. They always have some sort of need. So in my keeping of my Sabbath day, invariably by 10 a.m. on that day, I would remember things I didn't finish and I would start to feel a little anxious. I would wonder what's in the inbox, what's been happening, but I would more quickly remember those things I didn't do, like a pastoral call that I forgot to make because the time frame didn't coordinate right. Or remembering that I had a sermon to deliver on two days later and I hadn't really started it and Saturday was going to be busy all by itself already. Or maybe there was some type of reading or something that I needed to do that always kept getting pushed to the end of the day when my eyes are shut. But by 10 a.m., I would remember And a little thing would grip me in the gut, and I would think, oh my goodness, I should do that. But I had a toddler, and I couldn't really call somebody and ask how their surgery went for fear that someone would yell, Mommy, from the other room. And it's hard to pray when you have someone yelling, Mommy, in the background. So I would let them distract me. And that worked for a few hours. 
until we got to like three or four in the afternoon and it would all come back to me again. By now, certainly, the inbox was more full than it was a few hours ago. And the window of time to be ready for Sunday was closing in. And it would grab me again, and I would let my kids distract me again. Let's go to the park, because it's really hard to do sermon preparation at the park. Let's go make something with blocks, because I know I won't make a phone call if we're both engaged with blocks. And then by about 8 p.m., it would grab me one more time. But by then, I was remembering that all y'all were all relaxing wherever you were, and I thought, forget it, everybody's fine. Nobody cares about anything now. It's Friday night at 8 p.m. Over the years, I learned to keep trusting God with my life. And each Friday, I would practice again. And slowly, the 10 a.m. anxiety went away, and I didn't feel that stress anymore. Just the 3 o'clock and the 8 o'clock would creep up. Then the 8 o'clock was a little bit more easy to give up, and I didn't feel that stress anymore. But that 3 o'clock in the afternoon, man, that was a doozy. Each time I would think, I've got to do this, I've got to work, and it was my prayerful invitation by God, God's self, saying, Whitney, trust me, it's okay. I can take care of everything for 24 hours. And eventually I got the hang of it, to where the anxiety of the day completely left. And as I came to my inbox on Saturday morning, lo and behold, nothing had burned up or blown away. The emails maybe resolved themselves or didn't turn out to be a deal at all. The sermon ended up getting written by Sunday morning. The pastoral issue was resolved or there was a window of being able to respond to it. We are invited to be citizens of the kingdom of God to move into the the kingdom that God is inviting us into. And in that kingdom, we are invited to trust God with our lives. It takes a ton of practice, but it is available to us constantly. Every day, throughout the day, we are invited into it. And so I am reminded of the beauty of this coincidence as American people, of what it means to have Thanksgiving right next to Christ the King Sunday. Because indeed, there is a lot to be thankful for. To be thankful for what God has made known to us in Christ. To be thankful for the love of God that traversed time and space and came into a very specific time and space so that we would have a a demonstration and a relationship that can make evident what God wants to offer us every day of our lives. God wants to offer us a new way of being, a freedom that comes from citizenship in his kingdom. God wants us to know that in God's economy, our needs will be met always. It's not a zero-sum game. God wants us to know that even those things that threaten us will not destroy us. This is all the good news. And we are invited to remember it here on this day, Christ the King, and to give thanks for it. Amen.